talk about revolution that's going a little bit too far. So love me, love me, love me. I'm a liberal. Hi, and welcome back to more like the worst wing. I'm Dave. And I'm Stu. And we're back here with our discussion on the second episode of the first season, entitled Post Hoc Ergo Propter Hoc. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Which I feel worse just for having said that much Latin at once. <laughs> uh, but before we get into why regurgitating Latin is awful, let's get into a description of what actually happens in this episode. So our episode opens with Mandy being two for two on her quota of driving like a total fuckwad uh, as she is again speeding through the streets of D.C., uh, hops a curb and leaves her car there so that she can go and yell at the senator uh, she is working for about him capitulating on this A313 bill uh, and he's going to vote with the Democrats, which is what she did not want at all and all the while definitely not getting lit up by like capitol police or i don't know the secret <laughs> service or anything <laughs> for basically what would have been interpreted these days as i don't know an assassination attempt it's a very pre-9-11 moment <laughs> uh, yeah um so she's furious because this was going to be his, like, launching off point for a presidential bid is the implication here. And that's the whole reason he retained her services was to, like, spin up the campaign and everything. And he's basically mean to her, like, look, I'm not doing it. It's too early. I'm not going to run for president. You know, give me four more years or whatever. And she's crushed because this is her only client. Uh, so she returns back to her office to explain to her partner, um that they're bust, <laughs> they're totally busto, uh, which is great because they, of course, already have paid for this giant office, which, why do they need a giant office, by the way? If there's only two of them. It's her and an assistant. <laughs> there's only the two of them. <laughs> yeah, it's this giant bougie office, and it's it has its own restroom. It's insane. Like, oh my god. Anyway. Clearly, clearly uh, rolling in it here, you know, on Bay anyway, Street. All this stuff with Mandy is basically the cold open as we smash cut to Josh being on the opposite end of Mandy's misfortune. He is gloating. He is glorious. He gets the finest muffins and bagels in all the land uh, delivered to him. Uh, he's having a nice big victory lap. Uh, people actually clap for him, I noticed. <laughs> the background staffers actually clap. Because he has, uh, I guess, worked out this issue and won Correct. against Mandy specifically. Correct. Uh, he basically got said senator to capitulate on the bill, you know, doing his job as deputy chief of staff slash whip, essentially, to get this guy to vote the way he wanted him to vote. Yep. And um, throughout this scene, sort of, you have Miss Donna Moss, his secretary, playing like the straight man as he goes around and gloats. But like these days, come on, guys, just fucking gloat. It's fine. Like, yeah, it's not. Bad. Yeah, there's this big. There's this big thing where the senator is assuring Mandy, like, look, they don't gloat up on the White House. They're serious people who never gloat. And then it's a comedy moment when Josh is actually gloating. But, like, why? Yeah, <laughs> like, just gloat. Just, uh, Gloating's it's, fine. It's fine. You guys, like, you don't need to. This isn't This isn't decorum time. Like, good job. Yeah, you can, you can gloat about a win. It's fine. Yeah. Uh, so then further into the episode, we get... Um, 
Well, there, um, there's this brief discussion. Sorry, go ahead. There's this brief discussion of like the troubles that they're having and why they need this A three one three or whatever the bill's name is to line up in their favor because they're like talking about snorkels alert polls where they're like, oh man, you know, we're losing on this, we're losing on that or whatever. And they're just stunned as you wrote, you know, they're shocked they got creamed in Texas. Like, yeah. oh my goodness. Look, yeah, there, uh, there's a running through line here about Bre- President Bartlett's sense of humor and how it's bad for the campaign and bad for bad for them, essentially, because he makes awkward jokes that, that turn off voters. Uh, but you were never going to win Texas. You're a Democrat. Like, C- come I don't on, guys. Know what, Come on, what's going on here? Um, so we get a, a meeting where they're discussing polls and everything like that. Uh, President Bartlett gets a health checkup by uh, Dr. Morris, the, the naval doctor or whoever is in charge of the presidential checkup. Uh, he has all the subtle foreshadowing of Mendoza's partner from The Simpsons. Uh, instead of instead of showing off his boat to live forever, though, it's his brand new baby girl, which is uh, like ten times worse in the you are going to die uh, yeah. things to be showing around the office. And it's like, you know, and he's going around and, you know, telling everybody about it and joking with the president. Oh, she's so beautiful. And, you know, like, just being, like, oh, basking in this praise. Like, I got my life figured out, man. I'm going to a teaching hospital in Jordan. In the meantime, uh, C.J. Craig's got a uh, bit of a thing going on with our vice president, who we meet for the first time, Vice President Hoynes, uh, played by a very noted character actor uh timothy matheson correct yep he was otter in animal house famously and many many other roles you've seen him in uh here he's playing the vice president who we get a shot of doing an extremely vice presidential thing which is taking a picture with like uh some varsity high school sports national champion team or something along those lines uh a, a meaningless press moment essentially which is all the vp seems to do um, just like the real world. Well, and you would hope it would be all the VP would be doing, but it seems like, you know, the interaction here, it implies the fact that the VP is way more important than yeah. he actually, or like should be. It, it gets weird because it implies there's some sort of friction going on between the VPs, the VP and the president, um, where he did, he made a comment that, that basically implied that they needed a lot of support right now, which is something you shouldn't say because it like weakens the team. Uh, it's it, it just it feels like it's the smallest stakes conflict or drama. Yeah, and there's like they devote you know like honestly there's probably four minutes of airtime to this dick measuring contest between Leo, the chief of staff for the president, mm-hmm. and the vice president, where they're just like you know like we're supposed to be on the same team like you take orders from me and he's like oh i don't take orders you can consult the constitution on this shit right and it's just yeah it's just setting up that they have an adverse a a not great working relationship essentially um so uh that's those are the kind of the main beats of the episode so then toward the end here uh we get the payoff of all this foreshadowing of the man with the live forever baby uh, where on his flight to Jordan to be in a t- his teaching hospital or whatever, he's shot down with a surface-to-air missile by some bad men, uh, and Bartlett, full with the fury of God himself, is going to strike havoc down on these ne'er-do-wells who done 
killed this nice man. <laughs> it's, it's like generic listing of bad things in the Middle East. Oh, it wasn't these guys? But then we learned it was these guys. And then these other guys, we got a tip that it's actually these guys. And he's like, <laughs> right. And then the person is all like, I'm not afraid. Like, I, I can blow shit up with the best of them. Like, you know, <laughs> these guys shot my doctor down. Um, you know, basically him saying, I got it. What the hell is the line? It's like, I, anyway, he invokes some biblical sounding. Right. Uh, it's, you know, the, the fury of God's own thunder or yes. something along those lines. <laughs> yes. Exactly. And then we, we fade out after that little bit of like, sort of almost like trite and convenient wrap up to yes. that part of the show. Yes. And that covers the plot recap, uh, for this episode. Well, uh, let's get, Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. I was going to say, um, there's a brief revisitation of the Sam Seaborn and Laurie oh, right. I totally relationship that bit. in this episode, which we will <laughs> kind of address, you know, in the fullness of our analysis. It's less integral to the plot at this point, but we'll see a theme start to emerge where we... Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead, Dave. That's just more of a continuing <laughs> plot line from the first episode that keeps going. Okay, so, and our first sort of uh, issue that I for, kind of forgot to cover in the plot recaps, basically because it's a uh, plot line from episode one that's still going on, which is uh, Sam and, oops, I slipped, I, I tripped uh, and fell in a call girl, uh, as Toby would put it, <laughs> uh, his little adventure with, uh, with Lori, uh, a.k.a. Liesl Edelstein. So, Sam... Uh, wants to talk to her again, and basically, he likes her. Like, honestly, he just says, like, I want to date her, uh, to do both Josh and Toby, is the implication here. Like, I, I will I like to see her again, I'd like to, like, keep keep seeing her. They both, of course, tell him, that's insane, you work at the White House, she is literally a prostitute, you cannot do that, Sam. Uh, which is, of course, good career advice for Sam, uh, but he says, damn them anyway, because I'm Rob Lowe, damn it. Well, and also it's his perception of this person, again, coming out of the first episode, we expect or, you know, we would we would hope as an audience that, you know, he maintains this actually healthy perception of a woman who just happens to be a sex worker, but he is into her and would like to pursue an adult relationship. Right. Which, so, yeah, I'm not faulting Sam here, necessarily. Uh, both times, though, when discussing this, both Josh and Toby imply that his motive is that he wants to save her, uh, which he denies. So I was on, again, I was with Sam's side, uh, <laughs> although later we learn he is uh, massively deflecting, and he really does want to save her. Yeah, imagine um, that. Which is uh, ridiculous and... Um, Lori herself calls him out on how ridiculous it is, uh, saying that she makes far more than him, uh, she's never gotten in trouble with the law, and uh, she loves what she does, she doesn't have, like, a- abandonment issues or anything like that, she's she's fine, Sam, she's fine. And so, like, this sort of... It's almost like flipping a switch with Sam, too, with the character, where it's like, we're cool, we're cool, we're cool, and then he goes and has this absolutely utterly bizarre interaction with Lori in this restaurant, right? With oh my God. Um, these two other, I'm assuming politicians like, and he uh, yeah. 
like and she is she is working like he comes Clearly. in the door and realizes that she is working and then walks over to this table and we're like okay 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 is this going to work out like this could be like theoretically this could be a very like sort of complex or you know well-written drama around mm-hmm. their interaction like in the light of her profession and right, instead yeah, like it's like some i know you know kind of like leveling thing going on here yeah yeah but instead he just fucking blows in intriguing. he just blows in and is like hey politicians who know who i am that's who i am what's up <laughs> i'm sam seaborn i know that i know that you know this woman is a call girl and like she's actually with me so it's like <laughs> It's it's like a double uh, negative, like a double career suicide yeah, thing. Like, <laughs> oh my god, it's just the worst. And I guess that like it's it's pl- kind of played for comedy, obviously, where Sam is literally doing the worst possible. Both Josh and Toby have told him like this is the worst possible thing you can do, <laughs> and he's just like diving in head first. So there's clearly an element of kind of comedy to it here. Of he's getting what he deserves for pursuing this foolish course. Yeah, and it um, seems like, and I, I honestly, at this point in the show, you really don't know enough about any particular character to read much into their motivations for something right. like this because it is an emotional issue. But it's almost like when they go out and then they're walking through the streets and she's freezing because she left her coat at the table. He gives her his coat and it's almost like flipping a switch all of a sudden. And he's like, oh, well, you know, you don't have to be a call girl if you're right. like me. It's, it's, wow, you're right. And it's... What's funny, what's interesting to me is that she refutes him so well to his face, uh, and then he goes, yeah, but, like, look at me, I'm Rob Lowe, and then he just <laughs> looks at her meaningfully, and, like, that makes all the objections melt away. Yeah, and, and again, to be fair, he's a very handsome man. <laughs> well, and it's also, this is written into the show. It's not like, you know, these characters are acting of their own accord or anything. Right. It is written quite well that it's, she is, like, you know... I'm comfortable with my lifestyle. I'm not threatened by any of this. Yeah, I'm not... she's not lying either. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. She's entirely upfront with him about it. And it is, quite frankly, a very healthy attitude that she has. And she's going into this with her eyes wide open. And then he's just like, nah, but you should come be my side piece or whatever. <laughs> and everybody, right. it, it's just assumed that it's like, aww. And they're going to go off into the sunset together. <laughs> yeah, she's very clear on being like, hey, look, if you weren't, deputy chief of you know communications at the white house yeah maybe we could date or whatever but clearly that you know she's a pragmatist she realizes the world they live in and that this is never ever gonna work you know let's acknowledge that we had a fun night together and go our separate ways but yeah and it's, it's just this weird kind of especially and again we noted in the first show that like the pilot of any tv series rarely necessarily reflects what's going to happen in the entire remainder of the series once it gets picked up. Right. But this sort of marks, there's a quick reversion, especially in all of the female character roles in right. this episode so of the show. Let's dig into that for a moment. I would like to point out before we leave this, though, that it's really interesting that we're already seeing a serialized moment of this is a plot line that's starting in episode one that links straight to episode two. Yeah. Uh, Again, uh, sort of going back to our episode zero discussion, like rarely seen in this era of television. You know, we were still very much in the episodic uh, formula stage of mainstream television. Uh, But yeah, let's springboard into 
the other female characters and how they are treated <laughs> in this episode uh, and the answer is not well Stu not, not well at all not very well Dave you know I wouldn't want to be Miss Donna Moss and be just kind of you know foisted off with a there there honey and a pat on the rump you know <laughs> oh it's just God. they and so it gets Mad Men-esque is the phrase that comes to mind, uh, particularly with, and I want to put in a clip here, of Margaret uh, and Leo having a little interaction. Uh, she's on a knockout. Both of them. I'm sorry, I've forgotten your wife's name. Angela. And the girl? Corey. Leo, did you tell the council's office that they would be in on the 10 o'clock? I may have. That's really something that you want to tell me. Here, it's a baby and a new mother. Look at that for a minute. Oh. Listen quickly. And so... Uh, again, right here, Margaret brings up a very, very apropos thing of like, hey, I'm your secretary. My main job is scheduling you. When your schedule changes, please let me know those things. And Le- and Leo's like, here you go, doll, baby. <laughs> it's, it's like it's, she literally stops in her tracks, gapes her mouth open, and goes, oh, at this picture of a baby. It's like... And he might as well just said, like, looked at the camera and said, like, bitches be shopping, am I right? It's like, I was like that's how you take care of your dames, fellas. <laughs> it's like, woof. Well, and it, it, it just, it runs throughout everything. Like, Donna sort of has the same, not exactly the same moment, but is, like, treated with the same sort of dismissive thing. And we'll notice that other than, like, CJ, and, of course, at this point in the show, Lori, like, all the female characters are assistants. Mm-hmm. of some sort mm-hmm. and that's how they interact with the main members of the cast so mm-hmm. it's just like man we had we had built up all this you know re- just really good will there was a lot of you know just good camaraderie across the gender gap here and then all of right. a sudden it's like C- wow babies C- <laughs> yeah cj makes it out the best of this thankfully since like since she is press secretary press secretary now, like, there's a joke to be made here that, oh, she's a secretary, too. But, like, um, <laughs> since she actually has, like, is in charge and is not an assistant to someone else, she gets more of her own plot lines with her own weight to them. Like like this one she has with the VP here. Uh, even though it goes nowhere, it gives her, like, some meat to deal with, at least. Yeah, and I think um, there there is a certain amount of deference. I mean, the VP is set up to be, like, sort of a jackass. And so through that lens we are treated to a sympathetic portrayal of CJ and her power in the situation. Right. It's like she should be getting more respect than she right. is because this guy's an asshole. Right. And it, yeah. And the cl- the show clearly frames it that way as well. Definitely. One of the female characters that actually comes out with a pretty positive portrayal in this episode um, is Mrs. Landingham, the personal assistant to the president himself. Um, uh, who is, you know, sweet old lady. She's a great character. I actually really love her as a character, and I know you do too, Dave. Yes, delightful. So she, you know, there's a scene where, and obviously, you know, she's wrestling his schedule around, and there's a scene where she comes in with, what is it, like a a cookie jar? There's Uh, a thing about cookies. So basically all the senior staff are gathering around, uh, waiting to go in for their big morning meeting. Uh, Toby's a little persnippity towards her, so he doesn't get to get a cookie out of Mrs. Lanningham cookie jar. Rob Lowe comes up and is nice, so he gets a cookie right away, which makes Toby jealous, and it's very funny. Yeah, and, you know, you you have these... On the order of tenth most powerful people in the country, being like, "Ooh, I'm motivated by, by sweets." 
a, a recurring theme throughout the West Wing, actually. <laughs> All these very mature individuals. Um, they love the so, carbs. <laughs> one of the people that she is, you know, controlling the president's schedule for today is um, this Dr. Morris character, who is the president's personal physician. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know about we know about his dumbass because of that Dr. Ronnie. Ronnie whatever who did Trump's physical this year was in the news all over the place because apparently is Ronnie Jackson is his name mm-hmm. and apparently like he was in the news and anyway so this is a routine thing right where this character is checking up on Jed Bartlett's health and this is where we get the thing about oh you know this is my wife and my daughter who was just born and I'm getting this dream assignment in Jordan you mm-hmm. know I'm teaching at a hospital and all this stuff. There is one clip that I'm actually would like to include here, which Go was ahead. somewhat prescient. It's flu shot. I don't need a flu shot. You do need a flu shot. How do I know this isn't the start of a military coup? Sir. I want the Secret Service in here right away. In the event of a military coup, sir, what makes you think the Secret Service is going to be on your side? Now, that's a thought that's going to fester. Close to. Which I just think is funny because, you know, this is a question that comes up a lot of you know, a lot these days in the right wing, like military fantasies, <laughs> it's just like we're gonna presume that everybody's on our side right. here in a shooting war that erupts. In and you know, it's United a fair States. question. It's a fair question to, <laughs> to be asking if you're in if you're in that situation. Yep. And so this is like this. This is. I mean, this is a big old trope. This is a a huge trope. Doctor Morris's character. You know, we, we kind of we. Whatever. Hopefully you guys have watched this. It's not a spoiler. So he dies at the end of the episode. <gasps> having, <laughs> having only having only like had, you know, this one interaction with the president. Well, so he's not like three, on. three and a half minutes of screen time total. Like and his yeah. death happens so off screen and not like in a dramatic mash style. Oh, Corporal Potter's playing another spoilers. I'm just going through spoilers like no one's business here. Uh, Colonel Potter went down over the Pacific while we see the room react to it live. Like no, it's yeah. just a very off-screen death, but yes, he dies. <laughs> well, and I you know to 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 speak on that perfectly, like they this this is very much a it, it smacks of kind of the the magical negro trope where there's this like it's a thing in modern fiction Mm -hmm. where you you put the words of you know overarching wisdom in the mouths of a usually male black character um i think in the matrix movie it was played up by the oracle was the magical negro you know bagger vance is my go-to personal example for that kind of thing exactly Uh, and so they they play it it's almost played directly in this clip because he's trading jibes with ostensibly the smartest person in the country mm-hmm. and most powerful person in the country, which is, you know, they, they put him on this level of an equal. Right. And then it just turns out that he's just like a throwaway character to be used later as a plot device to excuse some military action, right, some good get, old militarism. To get Bartlett so angry that he can really get into the uh, depths of uh, the real atrocities that America can perform. <laughs> yeah. It's like, uh, you know, his plane gets shot down and all of a sudden Jed's like, where are my helicopters at? 
I'm gonna blow up some weddings. Right, <laughs> like, uh, and it, the implication here, had it been a plane of people he didn't know, maybe he would not have gone as hard <laughs> with his reaction, <laughs> uh, which is not a good way to be leading. Yeah, <sighs> and... So also this is one of the, I will briefly tie in the West Wing Weekly uh, podcast to this thing, is they talk about this thing and they refer to this trope as the red shirt trope, which I think is inaccurate because... I, I concur. These the, the origin of the red shirt from the Star Trek series is basically just like some guy who maybe gets like two words in and then is completely like not a regular cast member and then will die to either show that a thing is bad or demonstrate how a bad thing happens right or something often right, by the dying stakes, essentially and while that is sort of what this guy's death does it's not in the way that a red shirt death does on star trek um, exactly and so that's why not, I he think, is not a red shirt <laughs> yeah no not at all and i think that's why we're, we can call this guy a scoey he is, he's McBain's partner from The Simpsons. He literally pulls out the photo. Yeah. And then we have Jed Bartlett saying, you know, Fury and Thunder or whatever. It's basically McBain going, Mendoza! <laughs> so, it's really it's like just, he had, like, I, if they showed a picture of the baby, I would not be surprised to see Live Forever tattooed on the baby's head. <laughs> it's that on the nose. Yeah, and it's, it's very much used as... Uh, okay, fine, it's a plot device, but it's like this shitty, like, awful kind of just like, well, of course we're going to go and we're going to go and blow up some villages. Yeah, they because... killed this nice man. <laughs> yes, and a plane full of his confederates. Like, how dare they? Um, so that's kind of the one of the big, it's an interesting interaction of, you know, your TV stereotypes and tropes with some very USA number one, Right. Uh, perspectives on things. Uh, and I, like I said, not to just keep hyping the next episode, but that one will really get it more in-depth as to, like, this whole retaliation aspect of American foreign policy. Uh, but that's thankfully not what this episode is about. Yeah, and it, it basically, it fades out with him going, like, you know, call the call the goddamn joint chiefs. Right. Shit's on. Because blow some shit up. Shit's on now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the last thing that we wanted to talk about was kind of the, the bigger and overarching issue in this episode, which starts with this kind of all staff meeting that the president calls, you know, to kind of discuss like the quagmire that the administration is in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, and during this, he uh, he asked the room at one point or uh, he says to the room at one point and we'll play the clip here. And it was avoidable. Sir. CJ, on your tombstone, it's going to read post hoc ergo proctor hoc. Okay, but none of my visitors are going to be able to understand my tombstone. 27 lawyers in the room. Anybody know post hoc ergo proctor hoc, Josh? And, and so this just, again, they are all lawyers, as he points out, which, you know, not that rare in when you get to that kind of upper echelon in DC politics. But it's also this incredible form of gatekeeping where they invent their own legalese language to specifically basically con the rubes uh, and and keep this knowledge locked away at the highest tiers. Yeah, so the the kind of the classical description of this is that um, lawyers are tantamount to a priest class in modern society because there are so many barriers to entry that are essentially meaningless 
um, you know, the, the specific type of language, the certain course of conduct, like your exposure and also your, like the, the course of your career is limited or, you know, you need to have X number of boxes ticked off. And so in, mm-hmm. you know, in, in a classical society, that would essentially be you know, like your augurs and your priests, you know, the right. people that are privy to what is a very technical bit of knowledge and legalese, but essentially is, as, you know, the president sort of breaks down in this episode, it's like, well, it's actually something that's pretty straightforward if you don't have to use a different dead language to describe it. Right, yeah, and, you know, much like back then, since the world revolved around God, the priests were the access to God, well, now the world revolves around law, because the law can fuck you up just as much as God could, essentially. And the law also provides access to political power, to to reality in the essentially the 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 functional Overton window of United States politics is dictated right. by this take on the law. Right, and since you know, if you're de- only dealing with lawyers, well, now you know, or have you ever dealt with anyone who's like worked a hard day's labor in their life? Have you ever dealt with anyone who's had it difficult to find a you know? money to pay a bill like you're running into a narrow and narrower circle of people when you, you keep this way have you ever dealt with a man that's two weeks away from retirement he's got a beautiful <laughs> wife and a beautiful baby daughter who was just born and he's going to have a teaching get anyway um so this is something that i think um probably a lot of our listeners and certainly a lot of the kind of the the, the dirtbag left discourse um takes on in United States politics currently is that there is a there is just this hilarious culture around posting, particularly like in the alt right and the faux intellectual um, conservative politics arena, where mm-hmm. these Latin and particularly like just logical fallacies. Mm-hmm. Again, we, we go back to this place where it's like if I just say the right combination of words and make my point in this fashion, like, you will truly be owned. Right, and the owning will be so severe that you must just give up everything, and yeah. I win. And, and when I invoke this, uh, this Latin incantation, like, oh, well, that's a post hoc ergo propter hoc, right. sir. And you'll just be like, oh. <laughs> and fade away like an anime villain, exactly. <laughs> yeah, like he'll fade out or, you know, get, uh, like, disintegrated like Thanos. Turn, it, so, turn into coins like in Scott Pilgrim. <laughs> yeah. And so when I was thinking about this, actually, and this is um, it's a little bit of a, a meta take on this, it is one thing that sort of ties together um, your modern um, intellectual liberal in the United States with, uh, gosh, your, your fringe suckers, like your freemen on the land and your more extreme libertarian types, because mm-hmm. all of these people um, sort of, they, they, it's almost like a cargo cult that they've built around this special tier of words. And we can't right. really blame them because the, the priest class keeps using them. Right, exactly. So they understand on some deep level because they've seen it, you know, in legal dramas or maybe even in their own lives if they've been in court. They've seen that, you know, a lawyer saying the weird words in the right way makes stuff happen. Well, you know, real stuff with real legal consequences. So they know that they're aware that 
if they could just get their hands on those right words, maybe they could make those things happen too. Yep, and it, and it's it is, very much a, a dumb person's idea of what a smart person argues like, essentially. Yeah, and you know, a lot of the the if you just if you use these totemic terms in your real life Discord, not only Discord discourse, not <laughs> not only will you be, uh, you know, more respected your viewpoints themselves will clearly take on this, oh, you know, you're on a higher plane of, right. you know, argumentation and, frankly, like, correctness now right. because you are covered by these special terms. Correct, yeah. And a, so- a side fringe of this is also that sort of, like, the length or the or the the presentation of your argument is more valid than the actual substance of what you're saying. You know, it's a very, it's a style over substance thing, essentially, where uh, these Latin words and these, you know, argument ad absurdium, sir, type things are the style and where the substance is, what are you actually trying to say? And I think it also, um, it, it results or it, it ends up with the same exact result on either side is basically right. people that. People tune out. People you know, tune out. That and all, and then in in the in the broader context, uh, the people who attempt to finally craft their arguments in this you know this verbose, just overbearing style, everyone ends up falling further under the sway of the exact same basically like fascist but simple language, entirely bad faith arguments that right. are kind of like they're swept up because then all of a sudden the people who are doing that are you know beating you in the streets or right. you know not giving you proper medical care or or redlining you out of your house or like you're never whatever you're never going to sell people on technocratic bureaucratic lawyeries language you know it's not sexy it doesn't win campaigns it doesn't convince anyone it's something to be used when you're debating minutia of law in certain situations not to the public and and we see it over and over again where you can you can fucking argumentum ad hominem me all the time, but then you know we've got neo Nazis in the streets, and right. you know we're we're, we're we're systematically dismantling the social safety net in the country because they just don't give a shit. Like they'll it's... go ahead. I was just say they'll 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 use the words when it's convenient to them, and when it's not convenient to them, then fuck it. We're just right. gonna you know we'll, we'll just use a gun instead. Right, it's the Sartre quote about dealing with fascists. You know, they treat they treat rhetoric and language as absurd things, and they'll back off of it the second it no longer, you know, amuses them anymore. You know, they don't care. Yep. They're not. They, they don't. Have, you know, you're never going to beat them in this marketplace of free ideas that <laughs> liberals love to imagine exists. And and this also like it's so early on in the show that this sort of the episode is titled this and this comes right. up over and over again. And it is, I think the single worst contribution that the show has made to political discourse is that if you believe these sorts of things and rational reasoned, like literal logic 201 level argumentation is a correct use or way to acquire political power it's it's just delusional right 
it's it, this is where you end up with this awful neoliberal like hellscape government we have where no, no one ever wants to do true solutions for anything anymore because you've gatekeeped all the people in such a way that you're never going to get anyone who wants to push for true solutions anymore. They don't know what that means anymore <laughs> because their brains are all wrapped up in this garbage. Yep, too busy hiding behind language. Exactly. And that does it for this episode of More Like the Worst Wing. Uh, thank you for listening. We, we really appreciate all the feedback we've gotten so far in the thread. Um, definitely feel free to chime in with more of your comments, more any ideas, uh, things you'd like to hear us discuss. Um, our next episode will be episode three, uh, entitled... Stu? I don't know. <laughs> uh, oh, come on, man. On. I'm, I'm looking all live. <laughs> Please, Wiki, take me to the place. Oh. It is titled Proportional a, Response. A proportional <laughs> response. <laughs> right. <laughs> Appropriately. Oh, we have to leave that in. That's so yeah, dirtbag. Absolutely. <laughs> well, you know, I, I don't give a shit. <laughs> um, uh, so the next episode deals more with Bartlett and the military, uh, in particularly in response to uh, the death of, of McBain's partner. Um, and we'll look, we'll look forward to that, and we look forward to more discussion of the West Wing. And thank you for listening. Um, please, again, if you're on the forums, I'm Gun Show Poophole. He's Wampa Lord. Um, we did register an email address for the show. It's theworstwing69 at gmail.com. Please feel free. Nice. <laughs> nice. Please feel free to send us feedback. Um, and we will talk to you guys possibly next week. Bye. I'll Bye. Send all the money you ask for, but don't ask me to come on over.